This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome to the East TraumaCast series. I'm Faraz Madbeck. I'm an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. Alongside a long-serving member of the Online Education Committee, Dr. Matt Martin, who is co-moderating today. Dr. Martin is currently an acute care surgeon at Chris Mercy Hospital in San Diego. Matt, as always, thanks for joining us. Yep, thanks for having me. So our topic today is uh, traumatic hemothoraces and their contemporary management. Uh, you might wonder why we picked what may seem as a rudimentary and kind of a dry topic. The reality is, is that unfortunately, a lot of it tends to be driven by dogma and individual training patterns and practices. I was always told that if there's no plural space, there's no plural space problem. And that epidemiologically, 80% of thoracic trauma could be taken care of with a well-placed chest tube, and that's it. And I was also taught that there's only two sizes of chest tubes, big and bigger. Uh, it's, it's actually a little bit more complicated. After all, we now know that perhaps small hemothoraces can probably be left alone. They can be observed. I mean, do we really have to drain every single hemothorax? And does it have to be the largest tube possible and as far as any can get it? Or would a smaller pigtail thoracostomy suffice as some evidence has suggested? What about routine hemothoraces after chest tube placement? Do we place a second or even, God forbid, a third tube, or do we proceed directly with thoracoscopy or even a thoracotomy? So joining us for the discussion today are Dr. Peter Ree and Dr. Narong Kovatanyu. We're delighted to have both of them on. Dr. Ree is currently a Section Chief of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the Westchester Medical Center in New York, and Dr. Kovatanyu is an Acute Care Surgeon and Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Arizona in Tucson, where he worked alongside Dr. Ree for many years. Uh, he is also the program director of the Q-Care Surgery Fellowship and director of the Surgical Step-Down Unit there. So if I could just get something off my chest right off the bat, pardon the pun, is this is for everybody. You're on call and a patient comes in with uh, blunt trauma and class 3 hemorrhagic shock, suspected hemothorax on initial assessment, either by exam or ultrasound or x-ray. I'm assuming that we would all go with a large bore conventional chest tube. I'm going to pay everybody a compliment by assuming that we would all go for that instead of the pigtail. Is that accurate? We'll start with Dr. Ree, and then we'll go down the line. Well, I actually do um, suggest that in a time of emergent situations that a finger thoracostomy followed by a chest tube may not be a bad situation when you don't have great imaging to tell you exactly what's going on. However, I have abandoned the large chest tubes, meaning 32 36s and 40s. I usually typically, at the very most, put in a 28 French chest tube in that type of situation. Narang, what's your practice? Um, I feel the same way. Uh, I still feel that the pigtail or percutaneous is not there yet. It's not a one-chop stop that you can put it as quickly like you would have done with central line. But at some point, I would like to see that can, that happen, that you can just put a pigtail as quick as chest tube. But right now, a patient is dying in shock, and I need something quick, chest tubes to uh, being put in. And I'm like Peter. I don't, I don't even think we stock the 3640 anymore here. We just stock 32 and 28. But 
I go with 28 too. Doesn't really make a difference. Fair enough. How about you, Matt? Yeah, and, and I thought and I thought I'd never say this, but I agree a hundred percent with Peter Ree. <laughs> it, it standard chest tube and, and we also have gone away from the thirty six or forty for everybody. Uh, and and yeah, I'm I'm usually putting in a twenty twenty four or twenty eight. Right. So in the, in the stable patient, Doctor, you you decide to intervene. The pigtail kind of has come your go to procedure. Well, you know, <clears throat> in a stable patient, yes, and in an unstable patient, in certain situations, when I know what's going on, I will still use a pigtail, and I think using the pigtail with a cellular techniques is, is extremely safe and easy to do. For example. Uh, had a patient with a tension pneumothorax with some mild physiologic changes, but not dead. And running up to the ICU with a kid in my hand, I can do that extremely fast and easy. Because on that one, it's even easier when you have a whole chest that's empty and you can put in that uh, guide wire very quickly and expeditiously. And I can tell you that, you know, unless you happen to have a scalpel in your hand and and a sterile forceps, that chest tube tray, uh, if it's ready for you, can be quick, but you can have these pigtail catheters ready for you just as quick. So in the wrong, a lot of the uh, – you were kind of the mastermind behind a lot of the studies that came out of your center. What, what, what's the history? What, what spawned the studies looking at pigtail versus um, large bore tubes for, for hemothoraces in particular? Well, first, I, I'm going to have to give credit to Peter because before I came to Arizona, we were using pigtail. I was I was at Oklahoma before I came to Peter's institution, and we were using them. Um, but when I came here, obviously, Peter was a big supportive, and we thought of doing a study. And, I mean, obviously, we start off with the pneumothorax, and just to prove that it works, uh, a lot of study that was done before we published was mostly done by the interventional radiologist who basically put a percutaneous catheter for, uh, for our patient. But so when I got here, we started doing for pneumothorax, which I think pretty much the rest of the country actually pretty much adopted the pigtail for uh, pneumothorax now. Um, but, and then obviously we expanded to the, uh, the hemothorax. And I mean, obviously, I think is is like you said at the beginning of this trauma cast is a is a dogma that people believe that you have to put in a big tube to drain that and I mean obviously we've have plenty of experience and we're just trying to to prove that you know I from I I really personally never said a pigtail is better than chest tube I just said that in certain situation it's definitely less painful um, and it, there's a there's an indication for the pigtail. So, um, Dr. Madbeck, I'll give you a little historical venue on how we started with this whole process. <clears throat> I'd like to take credit for it, but I'm not going to. And <clears throat> that's because uh, a good partner of mine way back then in, uh, well, I guess it's well over a, a, a decade ago, close to 15 years ago, George Velmahos, who's in uh, Mass General in Boston, was there in, in L.A. County with myself and with also uh, Matt Martin, and he's the one that brought to me the attention that, you know, clot in the chest, which is very common with blood, uh, doesn't come out of any size hole, and free blood comes out of any size hole. 
So with that in mind, we studied us. We, we did a study at LA County with Kenji Naba, who was the first author in the study, showing that a smaller size tube, 28, versus a larger size, 36 French chest tube, was equivalent and actually, uh, you know, had had a smaller, higher amount of blood coming out of that versus a larger size tube. So that's part of the the trend that we took in order to prove that a smaller tube is suffice and works well. We all know the problems with the insertion of the larger tubes. Uh, as there are gears and uh, new technology improvements with automated guns and so on that can put in chest tubes with smaller incisions and can do that safely, um, I think that's going to have us continue to look at this entire concept of what size tube we, that we need in. But a lot of it was obviously for patient comfort and, and chest tubes are, can be, as you know, very, very painful. So that's when we first did that uh, study in LA County. Then the uh, subsequent studies, when I moved to um, Arizona and we adopted the pigtail, uh, we started uh, to show serially with a variety of studies, both, both retrospectively and then prospectively, and then even with randomized studies to show that uh, pneumothoraces for sure definitely works, but also for hemothoraces, it seems to do very well. You know, I can, I can imagine people saying, you know, oh, I've seen these pigtails in subdiaphragmatic locations all too often. I've seen them in livers and stomachs and ventricles and whatnot, and I don't like them. What do you, um, what do you say to those people? Well, you know, I work in a teaching institution, so there are complications. And I have seen pigtails put in all sorts of places, including the heart, where they needed thoracotomies to put a stitch in afterwards, and in subclavian veins, and in the liver and the spleen. But I have seen that uh, uh, a chest tube is placed into just about all of those spaces as well. And in our studies, when we looked at our data very carefully, and, and since Dr. Kulvatanyu looked at this information with a logbook prospectively every single day, you know, we can tell you that the complication rates are actually bad in both groups. They, they can be, tubes can be put into any, any place that you can think of, but the pigtails are not any more dangerous than the chest. And I can tell you that for me, logging every complication, remember like 11 years ago when we first started doing this and back then with seven or eight partners, it was only a few of us who actually opted to use them even back then when people start using them we see a lot of complications but and you know we make that statement that it just like everything else is there's a learning curve it seemed like a simple procedure but it's not a simple procedure if you don't understand what uh, and where to put it it can be a problem and i always said to the resident at the most common reason i see as a complication or the, the reason for complication is the tube is being placed for non-indicative reason like the hemothorax that doesn't really need to be drained. That's usually because in order to put a pigtail for the hemothorax, you need an interface, which is fluid. If you don't have that, it's a little difficult to uh, to get the tube in and you end up either put into the lung or you know, your patient splinting, the diaphragm tends to rise, they end up putting into the liver or spleen. And you know those are things that can happen. Certainly uh, there's a learning curve to it. So, so Peter and, and Narang, maybe you could explain exactly what is happening when you say we're placing a pigtail. You know, at, at my place, if, if a pigtail is being placed, it's still, that's being done in IR under image guidance. Uh, we, we do thalquicks or other of the small bore 
Seldinger technique tubes, but but we're not doing true pigtails. So so are you guys doing true pigtails, pigtail kits, and are you using any image guidance or are you just placing them blindly? That's a very good question, Matt, because uh, like Narong said earlier, in, in trauma patients, the first literature study showing that it was effective was done in your institution at UCSD and done by interventional radiologists. And that was done in children. And then Narong Kovatan newspaper showing that it's effective for, hemo, uh, for pneumothoraces in adults was the first uh, trauma patients done by trauma surgeons. Um, the reason why I think this is so easy is because I, I actually grew up with the thou, which has the sharp intercannula um, metal trocar in there. And I went through that experience where we were getting a lot of complications by sticking these things into the parenchyma of the lung. And then we backed away from it and stopped using it in my residency time period. So we were making a full circle. But there is this catheter kit called the Wayne Pneumothorax Catheter Kit made by Cook. And I have uh, no financial um, relations with that company. And actually, Dr. Wayne, who's an emergency medicine physician, has contacted me and, th- and thanked me because his royalties have gone up so high. He uh, contributes uh, all of his royalties to educational fund in, uh, in the hospital that he works. But uh, we do know that from the company itself and from these royalties that Dr. Wayne is getting, that the popularity of this kit is uh, much higher. Uh, this kit comes with everything that you need, including the prep, the lidocaine, the, the guide wire, and the dilator for the pigtail. And the key is very simple. Uh, you anesthetize the skin and the tract, and then you have to put the introducer needle, which is resembles the needle that you use when you use a central line, and you have to put that into the space that you want to go, into the pleural space, whether it's a pneumothorax or the interface, as Dr. Kuvatanya was talking about, with a hemothorax. Then you pass a wire, and then at that point, everything is fairly fail-proof and easy to do. You dilate the tract, and then you put in this pigtail. Uh, There are commercially uh, other types of pigtails from different companies that are being developed right now to compete with it. But again, it's the Wayne Pneumothorax catheter kit by Cook, and then you just uh, attach it and sew it into place. Uh, Again, just like with the central line, the key is to put the wire where you want to go. And it seems that the pigtail, whether you put it in the back, the front, the bottom, or the top, it all seems to work the same. The lung pushes the uh, air and blood into the holes, and it seems to be very effective at uh, draining the the pleural space. I just want to add that I I try not, you know, because we we keep saying the word pigtail, but in most of my our publication we use the word percutaneous and then we can we can either say pigtail versus non-pigtail because i mean our hospital always stock pigtail here but there were points in time we didn't have enough pigtail that we had to use the uh, the non-pigtail which is the straight catheter but it's the same principle which is a percutaneous uh, placement and it, it play we place it just like we put a chest tube matt um, but without uh, the inser- insertion of the finger with a the, with a sweep, that part of the procedure is uh, obviated. And uh, just an interesting story: one of our residents just went to a fellowship here in New England as well, and she was frustrated because they weren't using the the, the catheter kit that she was trained to use. And for a lot of our uh, our new trainees, they're much more comfortable with this pigtail catheter kit than they are actually 
with a, a chest tube. Now, you know, it, there is something to be said about the fact that we're doing less chest tubes, but, you know, technology does make things advance and uh, some part, some procedures are not as common as others. However, uh, she says that in her institution, the problem is that they're not using the uh, pigtail catheter kit, but they're using these thals and other things with the choke cars in it. They've had horrendous complications, so they're in the process of mandating uh, larger test tubes again. And and so so neither of you are using image guidance, ultrasound or anything. It's just blind placement. I have used uh, ultrasound, and it doesn't seem to add much because um, for the uh, pleural effusions and also for hemothoraces, the ultrasound can be of use. But if it's a pneumothorax, sometimes you don't know how far away that lung is. All you do is get that void space. But I know that as I have instituted the pigtail now in my third institution in Arizona at uh, Grady in Atlanta and uh, here in New York, in New York it, uh, the fellows do like to use uh, the ultrasound when they're putting into a, for pleural effusions, just like you would when you're doing thoracentesis. They're using this pigtail catheter kits. It's available in both the trauma center, the trauma bays, and also in the ICU. So there are situations where I think just depends on what your capabilities and the comfort level is. But I know the younger trainees are liking to use it with an ultrasound. For me, just like with central lines, I'm very comfortable without uh, image guidance. I mean, for me, I think, I mean, I think we just use ultrasound to confirm that there's a fluid, um, you know, especially when you see something on chest x-ray, you're not sure if this is just atelectasis or actually fluid. Um, but I, I never actually use ultrasound to guide placement myself. So Matt, let me ask you, what are you using when you want to put in a small bore? Uh, we're using the Thalquick primarily. And, and that mostly because that's what we have stocked. And, and the only place in our hospital, and the same at the last place I was at, that, that had pigtails was in IR. Occasionally, we would go down there and grab a pigtail kit, but usually we would just do the Thalquick. And and again, all, all the issues you brought up, uh, I, I think that's probably a little more a little more dangerous for the inexperienced user. I think you can do a lot more damage with a Thalquick than with a pigtail. Are you using the Thalquick over a wire? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we we do the standard Thalquick Seldinger technique over a wire. Um, and, and I think we, we've seen, we've seen the same complications you see, you know, as we already heard about with the pigtail, uh, or any chest tube. Occasionally it's, it's in the wrong space. It's in the wrong cavity. Um, but, but I think it's, it's, it's been a pretty reliable approach and, and in most cases it, it's definitely as effective or, or better than a large bore standard chest tube. Yeah. We have a similar experience here. We stock them in our competition unit. And that those cook catheters, and we just do a similar approach, you know, fourth interspace mid-axillary line and plus or minus ultrasound just to confirm or most appropriate location. Um, but it's the same approach. Uh, I was going to ask uh, Matt that, you know, when, when you guys have complications and you guys discuss them at the M&M, do you guys talk about why it went wrong? And did you guys learn from that? Well, we, we have the discussion, <laughs> you know, wh wh whether we whether we learned a whole lot other than, you know, 
it, it was a misadventure. Uh, Could you, you know, like, I'll, I'll give you one example. The one that we have one that put into the heart. And when we present it and what I, I learned from it is that, that the resident put it in exactly the same location because this, this lady had a, a pneumothorax and got a pigtail and then basically developed, uh, I guess I would call undrained hemothorax seven or eight days later and then end up needing to have another tube. But for whatever reason, the resident choose to do a pigtail. But the problem I have with that placement is that it's not a virgin chest anymore. Once you put a tube into someone's chest, that chest is no longer virgin and it has adhesion and it can form adhesion. And then so basically that's a very risky, um, just like what we know when we put a chest tube into a, a non-virgin chest. And that's what happened when it went into the heart. So to me, every complication, there's always an explanation why it went wrong. And, you know, for me, I try to learn from them because I know we learn from our mistakes. <clears throat> so I think that, you know, Narong's making such a great point about that. You know, when you see people with uh, previous chest tube uh, incisions or scars and uh, thoracotomy incisions and scars, you have to be extremely, extremely careful about the adhesions, the adhesions in the chest from a, a, a hemothorax, I think, forms as early as day two. And uh, you just have to be careful about, you know, what you're doing, knowing that the adhesions are in the plural space. Yeah, and, and that, that's a great point. And, and I'd say probably something that's underappreciated by people who start doing this is, is a lot of people will just say, I'm going to put it in the exact same location as I would using my, my standard open chest tube technique. And, and I think you need to realize the variation in your position options, like, like especially for a pneumothorax, you know, if it's a pigtail or a thalquick, I place that very anterior and, and higher than I would for a regular chest tube. And, and, and that's because that's where the air is going to be. Uh, and, and even for a hemothorax, I'll go a little higher with these uh, because I, I think the bigger, the bigger risk is that you're too low and you're going below the diaphragm. So I think you want to cheat a little higher with these because you're not getting that finger in to get a good feel. You're doing it purely by, you know, needle access into that space. Well, but I have to warn you, though. I don't know, Peter, if you remember the very first, uh, uh, one of the very early complications, the one that was, you mentioned placing the subclavian vein. That was, that was the one that was placed exactly second in the costal space, mid-clavicular line. But the problem with that technique was the resident pushed the needle in too deep. And, you know, when you have a total collapsed lungs, everything shifted, including the uh, great vessel. And that needle went in just a little too deep and got into the IV, uh, into the subclavian and ended up putting the pigtail into the uh, subclavian vein. So for me, I always tell the resident that you don't really need to go exactly second, third intercostal is fine with me. Just beware of where your needle is. Because you don't want to put the needle way too deep, like you uh, you shouldn't. Yeah, I remember that case. That that was uh, about twelve years ago when that happened, and uh, uh, that that brings us to another topic. What happens when you put this catheter into the heart, or if you put it into a subclavian vein? Uh, with that with that one, we just pulled it right out, and uh, our experience with that was that nothing happened when it was in the subclavian vein. It's like when you put a large dilator into the subclavian vein. Um, and we're surprised that uh, the patient did so well. Uh, I've had 
some experience with the ones that go into heart and when that's and it's when it goes in the heart, it's fairly easy to understand and, and uh, distinguish that. In those pa- in those patients, what I've done is just uh, turn the three-way stopcock off, so it's uh, obviously not draining cardiac blood. Uh, go to the operating room, and then uh, with a, a mini thoracotomy, uh, you'll be able to see the catheter going into the ventricle. And uh, when you pull it out, it usually just requires one suture. Uh, something else I've learned is that you know, when you put in these catheters, and I, and I agree with you, second intercostal space, uh, mid-clavicular line for pneumothoraces was always a safe bet, especially when you see a chest CT scan and the lung is dropped down, and that's the biggest interface, then putting a needle in there is pretty, pretty easy. So once you've done that, it's, it's, it's really surprising sometimes how much blood comes out, even though it didn't seem to be there. Blood and fluid will come out. And... Uh, when there are hemothoraces in a different location and you put a catheter in the cavity somewhere, even if you put the catheter anteriorly, I'm always surprised how that fluid that was in the bases in the bottom makes its way up and out of there. And I think it's because as you're breathing and your lung keeps expanding and pushing the fluid out, it seems to come out even though it's not in the bottom of the cavity. Now, now what, what would you say to the person who says, you know, to argue the opposite position, well, I've never put a standard chest tube into a subclavian vessel or the heart. So, you know, why should I be doing this procedure where we're seeing these complications that I never have with a standard chest tube? Uh, Again, it is a learning curve, and I have seen chest tubes uh, put into the heart. I haven't seen them put into the subclavian vein, uh, but I have also seen thals uh, being put into the heart as well. In terms of, um, you know, the issue with clotted blood, you touched on it a little bit briefly. Clotted blood, the, the concern for obstruction and clogging, have you found that to be a legitimate concern uh, that makes it inferior to, say, a conventional large bore tube or not? Well, you know, <clears throat> when you look at these catheters, you would say there's no way it's going to be equivalent to a chest tube. But, but that is pretty surprising in the number of people that need to get uh, a VATS procedure or, or thrombolysis has been equivalent in both the chest tube group and also in the pigtail group. Uh, I know this is in the earlier phase of adoption. I'm pretty sure that in the country and also worldwide, this will be adopted because it just makes a lot of sense and it challenged the initial dogma. But that brings up a very good question about retained hemothoraces and what to do about these. Um, one interesting um study that was done was when somebody irrigated the chest after the initial placement of tubes. And I think that might have a role for us in the future. And if we do something like that as a routine, the pigtails do make it a little bit easier for infusion of fluids and also the withdrawal because they have a three-way stopcock. But uh, that also goes into whether you want to do what people want to do right now is early VATS versus thrombolysis. Uh, Matt Martin and I were both in Los Angeles when we were very aggressive for a period of about five to eight years of studying thrombolytics and putting a variety of thrombolytics in the chest to help dissolve that clot. And the the results from that are pretty impressive. About 85% of the time is successful. But uh, one thing that the papers don't really explain is that while it is successful for retained hemothoraces in a, a, a large percentage of the people, 
it takes many, many days and it's very difficult to do to go in there with the chest tube. And we used to infuse streptokinase uh, twice a day, have the patient move around in a variety of different positions. Uh, the patients don't like being in the hospital for an extra four or five days. And while it's successful, what it doesn't talk about is the 15% that it's not successful in. Uh, these people get empyemas and they get tremendous amounts of adhesions in the chest. And if you have to operate on these people, it becomes very difficult to do and a very challenging procedure. Uh, I'd love to hear Matt's uh, position on on the thrombolytics because I know he's had a lot of experience in that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and first on the, you know, the discussion of when you have that, of will, will this small pigtail drain a hemothorax and, and isn't it obvious that a bigger tube would, I, I guess one of the things I always say is, well, you know, let, let's go look at one of these big chest tubes that we have in how much clot do you see coming out of that tube? Right. You, you never see, it doesn't drain form clot. doesn't matter if it's a, 36 French tube or a pigtail form clot doesn't come out. It, it's draining flowing fluid and, and either drain will drain that fluid. And I think the data from, you know, from Peter and Bilal and Narang and, and others have, have pretty well shown that it's equivalent. Uh, in addition to some animal models that have shown it's equivalent, the, uh, the, the TPA question. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Peter. It, it works. I, I, my experience has been kind of more 50, 50, half, half the time it works and evacuates whatever's remaining half time. It doesn't, uh, but you're right. It is a multi-day process. You know, you're, you're rolling the patient around every couple hours, every time you infuse it, but, but it can be effective and can help them avoid, you know, needing another surgical procedure or proceeding on down the line to something like an empyema. So on that topic of the retained hemothorax, um, a lot of centers have kind of adopted an algorithmic approach like you've described for, you know, proceeding to, to VATS or, or even thoracotomy. I can't really honestly remember in our shop the last time we placed a second tube. Our practice is just to go to VATS. Is that the wrong? What are you doing in Tucson? Same. I mean, we're pretty aggressive with doing early VATS, day two, day three. You know, especially with when while we're doing replating nows too. I think we usually go ahead, do hands in hand plating and then just, you know, put a scope in and suck out any clotted blood and stuff. I think once you have the tube inside the chest, any what looked like to be a blood in there, most of the most of the time they are clotted. And I don't think you can get them out with another tube. That's why I think the best is just yank out or suction it out or pick them out. Is there is there a situation where uh, so you get a CAT scan of the chest and the blood's determined to be congealed on the scan that would even dissuade you from attempting drainage? In other words, a situation where you proceed directly to VATS or you would try the chest tube initially? Uh, for me, if I, after the initial chest tube, <clears throat> again, uh, chest x-ray showing the absence of the diaphragm leads to the CT scan. If the CT scan shows uh congeal or retain hemothorax and the chest tube is not functioning, I most always uh, will just sign them up for a VAT rather than trying to put in a, a um, radiographically guided uh, pigtail into that uh, clot. I find that if it's congealed, uh, even though sometimes it looks liquefied, when you put in that second uh, pigtail or chest tube into that area, it, it feels too often for me. Yes, I feel the same way. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can prove this, but I think once you have the tube inside the chest, 
any what look like to be a blood in there most of the most of the time they are clotted and i don't think you can get them out with another tube that's why i think the best is just yank out or suction it out or pick them out so you said day two or three is that the preferable uh time frame the consensus for everybody yes for me i also do the earlier part so i know that there are hospitals that have guidelines that if you can't see the diaphragm, that you mobilize the patient and turn them trying to get that to come out of the chest tube. And then if that does not work, that they should put in a second chest tube. I also know institutions that have guidelines that says if the first chest tube puts in, puts out 400 cc's that a second chest tube is required. Now, having said that, what my practice is, is if I have the opportunity to put in the pigtail safely, I will go to that route. If I need to do it emergently, it starts off with a chest tube, with a smaller chest tube. And then immediately then the, in the hospitalization on day two, if I don't see the diaphragm, then they get a CT scan. If the CT scan shows a retaining hemothorax of about 300 cc's or more, then I schedule them for a VAT, and I try to do that within the first three days of hospitalization. I find that if you start to getting into the fifth and sixth days, it's a little bit more difficult with the adhesions. And if it gets into the seventh day and later, it's uh, the procedure still doable, but it's more difficult. <clears throat> and it's more often that you would have to do a mini thoracotomy to get a hand in there. So if you do it early, it's just a very simple procedure of a glorified, you know, what we call a VATS or a YATS. In the old days, we actually used to use a proctoscope to help suck out that clot, but it's not that difficult to do. And I think every trauma surgeon should be credentialed to do that. Not to be too controversial, but who, who would perform VATS in your institution? Is it the cardiac surgeon, the thoracic surgeon, the, the general surgeon, or is it you guys, the QQ surgeon? We do it ourselves. And, you know, obviously part of the fellowship, they, they, they require to have a certain number of VATs to, uh, to uh, according to WAST uh, case log requirement, uh, they need to have like 10 VATs. Well, you know, I think that's a, <clears throat> a, a, it's not that easy of a question to answer. It depends on your expertise with that. And uh, it depends on uh, the practice in your institution, obviously. I've done VATs myself uh, for my entire career. So it's not too much of a problem. And in Arizona, where Dr. Kuvatanyu is, there's very little resistance in there. Uh, however, uh, in, in my credentials, it specifically says that trauma thoracoscopy for VATS is allowed to do. But there's a many institutions where they are going to come across that and be a problem uh, for that. So in, in public uh, academic centers uh, that are uh, very uh, uh, busy and high volume is probably not as big of an issue, but for the majority of the country, I think it's a very uh, lo local politics will dictate who gets to do that procedure. Uh, what are your guys' experience uh, in Florida and also in uh, San Diego? So we, uh, like, like Narang's experience, we do it ourselves. Um, unless there's an issue that requires, you know, uh, even if we have to convert to a patient that requires a decort or, um, you know, management in the, in the cardiovascular ICU. So it's essentially falls on us to, to, they're always available to help out. But what I've seen is that the, the ACS service takes care of it. Yeah. And, and like, like Peter said, it's, it's just going to be 
situation and local politics dependent. Uh, here it's here it's just attending dependent. Some will do their own VATs. Some will consult thoracic surgery and they'll do them. Uh, one of the things I've noticed also is <laughs> a little frustrating is that if the cardiothoracic surgery service does them, I usually like to tell them that, you know, their expertise is highly valued. And since they're so busy, uh, we try to reserve calling them for complicated procedures and uh, complicated thoracic issues and not for just evacuation of uh, hemothoraces in the, in, the two, in the chest. But if they do end up doing uh, a decortication, uh, they'll always come back with two or three chest tubes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and that, you know, the question about the time frame becomes crucial as well, because, you know, they're, they're busy enough with their elective practices and doing, you know, corner work and what have you, that it may be beyond, you know, it's New Year's Eve and it's, uh, oh, we can't get to it till Monday or Tuesday. Now we're losing a lot of ground and, you know, at risk of forming a fibrothorax or an empyema and it'd be, you know, a much bigger procedure. So just for, for when it's time sensitive, you know, just, um, you know, our, our service will just take care of it typically. Probably, I think the, one of the more interesting questions to touch on is what hemothoraces don't need to be drained at all and should we be leaving them alone? I, I think, Matt, that's a fantastic question. And that's a question that's been um, brought up, <clears throat> challenging of that dogma. You know, again, it reminds me of my time in uh, Los Angeles with uh, Dimitrios Dimitriades. He used to always give stories about uh, when he couldn't drain them and how well these patients did. That, that's interesting that we don't have the true natural history of these um, with these uh, retained hemothoraces. But in general, for me, what I'll do is if I see a small, meaning less than 300 cc hemothorax on a young trauma patient that's from blood trauma, that's the patient who I might consider just observing and not doing it. But for penetrating injuries where I think they might have been contaminated, I wonder if that problem with uh, the scars, adhesions, and infections is going to be a more of a problem. Older patients who's really ill on a ventilator, who might get a pneumonia, get a paranormonic process, and, uh, and you're fighting for all the vital capacity and tidal volume you can't, I probably be, wouldn't do it for those. But I, I do know, and I've also experienced this myself, that young trauma patients with an isolated hemothorax of small nature who is asymptomatic, I think those I can leave alone. Yeah. So, and, and, and I've been trying to look through the literature for this in, in finding what is the empyema rate for an undrained hemothorax. And, and there's very little on it as best I can find. It's extremely rare. Um, there, there's one paper by John Bellello, a series that was observed. Um, I think Mark DeMoya did another uh, of a rule for draining or undraining. And, and the rates of those becoming an empyema is like, from what I can tell, like 1% or less. And, and, and people always say, oh, if you leave blood in the chest, it's going to get infected and turn into a fibrothorax and empyema. And, and at least from, from what I can see from experience in the literature is the risk of an empyema is when we start instrumenting these blood collections. And, and leaving the small ones alone is probably the best way to avoid empyema, not not draining them and then having to retain hemothorax and then having a VATS. 
but interested in, in all your thoughts on that because that is somewhat heresy. I just want to clarify because Peter, you used the word retain, but technically I call this an undrained hemothorax. Anytime you never have a tube inside the chest, is anything that's inside the chest is called undrained. For me, I would be the same way is that I try not to put the tube right away. Patients are going to end up being in a hospital for a couple of days for pain control mobilization anyway. And I think over the next couple of days, sort of let the, uh, the initial hemothorax, because the very initial CT will not fully identify the amount of hemothorax. So I usually just give it a few days, let the blood go through the process of clot and then lysis. And then I think day three, day four, once you truly have the, the amount of hemothorax and you think patient is symptomatic, meaning that either she's still on oxygen and couldn't get off the oxygen, then I would drain that. I don't, I don't know if I have the magic number because the, the paper said 300 or more, but I use that as a guideline to consider draining. But if patient is symptomatic, I wouldn't drain it. I bring the patient back to clinic and follow them. And then if they end up needing to be drained, I just stick a pigtail in and then get the pigtail out the next day, kind of like pneumothorax. <clears throat> Works very well. It's interesting. Are you, are you actually measuring you know, calculating the volume, you know, the number that people throw around is 300 cc's, uh, are you estimating based on measurements on a CAT scan or you just really eyeballing right. it? And right. We just kind of use the uh, WAST uh, volumetric uh, formula to calculate. Yeah. And I'd say I, I'm more of an eyeballer and, and, but the first eyeball is the patient. You know, if, if they're asymptomatic, that then you know that that pushes me much towards okay we probably may not need to put a tube in this and and then eyeballing the imaging you know obviously if they have a large hemothorax that that I'm going to drain but but uh what I would call a medium to a small if they're completely asymptomatic uh, that's ones where now I'll, I'll observe a lot of those and if you're actually irrigating through a chest tube yeah I, I I'm actually I'm a big fan of that now uh, for a big hemothorax. And, and this is the patient who comes in and has the chest x-ray and you, you know, okay, there's, there's, you know, 800, a liter of blood in there. And, and I'll either take them to the OR or if they're already intubated in the trauma bay, do it there. And, and instead of a one centimeter chest tube incision, make a two centimeter incision, put a pool sucker in, suck out all of the blood, irrigate, suck out the irrigation, and then put the chest tube in. Uh, and, and at least anecdotally, uh, I think that has markedly reduced the incidence of retained hemothorax in those cases. Um, there's there's a couple papers on that using varying techniques of of irrigation suction with the chest tube placement. You know, one I think showed a benefit. One didn't really show much of a difference. Uh, and and there's a Western Trauma Association uh, multicenter study that's also started now looking at this. But uh, but I think it's an interesting approach and. And I like to do it if I can for large hemothoraces. I guess when you irrigate, you your intention is to irrigate the clot. Actually, I'm I don't irrigate very often. I'm usually just putting the pull sucker in, sucking out the fluid, and and actually with the pull sucker, usually you can you know move it around and break up clot. Uh, but I'm doing that early, so there usually isn't much clot, right? I'm not waiting a day or two and then saying we have retained hemothorax. This is at the time of initial chest tube placement. Right. So I guess that's question for you, Peter, then what's the point of irrigating early on because there's no clot in there, it's just blood. Well, so the the studies that have shown that the irrigation reduces the amount of vats later on is interesting. 
and it's it's about changing dogma. You know, you go in your mind, you say, look, there's some clot in there. What's washing the clot going to do? Is it dissolving the clot? Is it actually, you know, diluting it, making the remainder of it come out easier or not? I don't know the answer to that. I just find it highly fascinating that the groups who've been irrigating their chest tubes have found decreased uh, retained hemothoraces. So you know, with a pigtail catheter, it's got that three-way stopcock on it. And, and to put in a liter and to drain it is very easy to do. Uh, you don't have to do a whole liter at a time. You can do 250 aliquots or 500 cc aliquots, but it's on, off, on, off, on, off, and let it drain out. And uh, we, there is no data doing that particular methodology, but I just find it fascinating. And I thought I'd bring it up for a discussion. So, Peter, you, they're using saline or water? They're using saline. Okay. Yeah, I've heard the, the notion that water, you know, the osmotic gradient can help lice the clot. At least, you know, intraopist, you know, we have a diaphragmatic plaque. We used to just put water up there, you know, sterile water instead of saline. I'm not sure there's data to support that. It was just something that people did. Yeah, maybe in about a couple of years, we could do this podcast again and talk about the results of uh, the studies then. But uh, right now, I just wanted to bring it up for thought. I would like to say that uh, it'd be very interesting. The next study that that I'd like to see in the wrong do is a survey to see how many people in the country have adopted this, how many people have not. But uh, the people I know that have done this and have has, have used this comfortably are disciples of it. Well, maybe I'll do an East survey. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the usual long, slow march gradually away from dogma. And but 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 you will still you'll still see it out there of people who will look at you like you're crazy if you say to do anything other than a 40 French, you know, chest tube in a trauma patient. Yeah. Go big or go home, right? <laughs> All right. Dr. Naron Kovatani and Dr. Peter E. Dr. Matt Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you so much for having us. That wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery and Trauma. You can check out all the educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. Make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Thank you.